4: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy Monday. It is Monday, November 7th, which means uh, it's just one more day until we find out who will be our new president. And uh, I, I feel like I can't even breathe. I feel like I, I I didn't even know if I could make it here to the radio studio and do all these things like talk and, and chat because I kind of feel like not breathing and just uh, laying in bed until I find out. If I can live tomorrow and or not, (laughs) I'm being dramatic, Uh, just sharing my feelings. I think a a lot of people have already texted me, Facebook chatted, uh, sent me messages of how anxious we all are, but also staying positive. And um, I mean, you're tuning into the Progressive Voices Network. There's there's no, uh, you know, I'm, I'm okay telling everyone this, that I'm hopeful that Hillary Clinton will be our next President. Well, share your thoughts with me. I would love to hear from you and let me know how you're holding up. Um, and uh, hopefully everybody has plans uh, in terms of being with, with someone else. I think it's it's good to do that uh, tomorrow night as we find out what the el- election results will be. Uh, we have a special guest today. We have actually a, few, a, a couple of special guests. Uh, the 1st we'll talk about a, an exhibit right here in San Francisco that uh, looks at Latino drag performances and LGBTQ activism in San Francisco during the 70s up to the 90s. And then uh, the second half of the show, we have Stephanie Miller. Can you believe it? The Stephanie Miller. (laughs) I'm so excited for it. Well, let's get the show started. Uh, I'm anxious enough. I need to just get through this next hour. The show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our next guest is one of two curators uh, here in San Francisco that put together a special exhibit that's that's uh that's on right now at the LGBT, or I should say GLBT his, his historical, uh, museum. And it is called Noche de Ambiente and focuses on, on drag performances and LGBTQ and AIDS activism in San Francisco from the seventies into the nineties. Uh, let's, uh, yeah, this is so cool. This is so, um, Angel Raphael or Ralph Vasquez Concepcion, um, one like Harvey Milk, which is great, and it's it's timely. I I completely understand the historical context of what we need to share with the world right now as we progress with uh, LGBT rights, right? But a lot of times I think what gets lost in history would be some of the cultural influences as well that's a part of the LGBTQ community. So when I think about uh, even Latino representation in the gay community during that political time, I always think about, you know, Um, Jose uh, Saria, Uh, and that's because he's known as a major drag performer as well as, um, you know, somebody who is completely active within our community and one of the first, I think, political candidates to be out as well. Um, So I'm very excited for this exhibit that's going to give us a taste of what diversity was starting in the 70s. Talk to us about your interest when you started um, curating, you know, this exhibit that's going on now.
5: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Juliana and uh, Elgardo Lopera, the other curator, and I uh, uh, got together to make this exhibition, and both come from very different uh, training. She's a writer, she's a researcher, she is a keeper of oral histories regarding uh, the history of the uh, LGBTQ uh, Latino experience here in the United States, Uh, and I come from training uh, in the history of exhibitions and exhibition design. And uh, curatorial practices or modalities of curatorial practice and designs of display. So, I come from a tradition uh, in academic uh, research and my focus uh, that is very much centered around the idea of curator Marie Carmen Ramirez. She's a Puerto Rican born but US based curator who um, speaks uh, about uh, the curator being not so much an arbiter of space but actually. A cultural broker, a facilitator that allows Latinos and Latin Americans to represent themselves through the the apparatus of exhibition making, the mm-hmm. apparatus of exhibition. Mm-hmm. So we decided to come together to uh, uh, give shape to some of the stories that we were uh, that Juliana had gathered already, and that I uh, had uh, helped her uh, gather during the uh, latter part of the research for the exhibition. We visited people's homes. They opened their collections, their memories, their shared. A lot of very painful moments, a lot of very joyous moments. We were shared, and they gave us some material, and the material we assembled in chronological order, uh, spanning uh, 25 years of, uh, of history, where uh, we tried to, to present a more complex and more nuanced uh, uh, story of the Latino experience here in San Francisco. And, yes...
4: Yeah, and and you know I want to get into the meaning of ambiente um, and how that applies to the Latinx LGBTQ community.
5: Yeah, well, uh, ambiente is a word that we uh, that came jumped out of because uh, in Latin America, uh, especially uh, all language, all Spanish are not interchangeable. All Spanish is not interchangeable. So you have uh, a, a, a word that may mean to me it's a fruit, but to somebody else is a sexy part. Or, uh, or somebody says something that to them is a bug, but to me it's something else. But the word ambiente seems to kind of connect all the queer, uh, all the LGBT uh, uh, scenes across Latin America and it starts to kind of demarcate queer Latino space here in the United States. So, uh, ambiente seems like the point zero of everything that we encountered. Mm-hmm. All of the stories, a coded word, which is like we say in our exhibition text, translated roughly into atm- atmosphere or environment. Mm-hmm. But uh, it used, it's used. Uh, it's a word that also lets people know it's a cue that it is safe. This is a safe space for you to be queer.
4: Let's let's uh, discuss that a little bit more. When it's you know when you say coded language, it's safe. Uh, you know, space, it gives off this vibe that it wouldn't have been safe otherwise, you know, to be out, to be queer, uh, or to even represent yourself if you're, uh, you know, other than heterosexual and or Um, male-female. What was the environment like, you know, for queer Latinx people um, in the 70s? Let's start with that in San Francisco.
5: Well, in many uh, many instances, uh, there were Latino bars that had gay nights, so that would be the word that would be used to demarcate or to, or to call that type. Uh Before there were gay bars, or there were street bars that had mixed to, mixed uh, uh, attendances uh, of a variety of uh, sexual orientations. And that uh, those the, those that word is associated with with that type of uh, a dynamic, where where there's a, you know there's normally Latino is Latinidad is very macho, and and this is some of the things that we that we encountered in the literature that we uncovered and we unearthed. There's a lot of queers kind of uh, tackling that. Uh, and how, how how can we be queer and be proud of our culture when our culture is so male, masculine, mm. macho, machismo and all that. So, uh, ambiente is a word to let everybody know, no, no this is a space where this is okay versus every other space where it's not okay or every other night of the week where it's not okay. hmm
4: Mm -hmm. what about activism
5: uh, and and, and it also kind of connected Spanish from Mexico, Puerto Rico, Colombia everybody recognizes the word ambiente as a queer word right? Uh, very differently from words that we used to talk about sexuality which are not, like I mentioned, not always interchangeable Mm -hmm. and usually result in hilarity actually (laughs) more than anything else
4: yeah um I, I wanted to also ask about uh, activism you know during that time the 70s and 80s seemed like the LGBTQ community was focused on liberation uh, especially after Stonewall where did uh, you know Latinx um, people especially in the activism world kind of where where did they fit in to, to that
5: well as you can imagine uh, facing uh, AIDS was a terrifying experience for everyone who saw and was there. And imagine facing that in a different language, or in a language that is not accessible, where this disease is being discussed and it's not. So the work of Latinos who do the translation
3: and the activism
5: to educate the public then gains, I think, an important survival uh, value that I think is not always recognized. The people who are doing the translating Mm-hmm. During this time, not just Latinos, but the Chinese and everyone who was here at the epicenter of the disease and everywhere else in the world, really, you know. Uh, so we really wanted to point that out, how a lot of the trans community actually galvanized and unified something that had not happened before because they were, uh, as they, they were closer to, to, to medicine than most everybody. So they were, they were getting information that they, they took care of their bodies in a very different way. So they, they, they were able to educate each other. And also span out to, to, to the sexual worker uh, community and educate them also. Uh, so it's important to, to highlight this type of uh, activism and uh, effort that uh, the Absolutely. community were able to provide for itself.
4: That's right. Um, Angel, we're going to take a quick break right here. When we come back, I want to discuss and talk about some notable Latinx um, uh, people or activists, as well as the drag performers that might be showcased in this exhibit that you've curated. So stay with us, okay? Of course. The Michelle Show continues right after this. Don't go away.
3: you are listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. This
4: is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say, I do especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW.
3: When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care. Serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
4: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Monday, the day before Election Day. We're going to start the show off uh, with a conversation about LGBTQ activists in the Latino community here in San Francisco during the 70s through the 90s. Uh, featured in an exhibit curated by our guests as we continue our conversation, Angel Rafael or Ralph Vasquez Concepcion. Um, Angel, I wanted to talk about some notable drag performers and or LGBTQ activists within the Latinx community during uh, the, the, the time frame that you're covering. I mentioned uh, Jose Saria, but who else, you know, can we talk about who made a significant contribution to the LGBTQ Latinx community?
5: Well, I can tell you from our uh, research, uh, Juliana has uh, worked uh, for many years with a uh, trans activist, uh, eight activists, activist, uh, Adela Vasquez, whose archival material is actually uh, the, the one of the first uh, materials that we uh, received and um, sh- uh, we went through and educated ourselves because we were also educating ourselves about this history. We, we, we didn't enter into this field having full understanding of the complexity of the scene. But we went in and we asked questions and we branched out. We met with other uh, people like uh, uh, Juan Alberto Tam, uh, who lent us material as well. He was involved with the artist community, uh, the visual artist community. This is something that we discovered was uh, very, very organized in having presence uh, and creating awareness about. AIDS during the 90s, artists creating work about this. So it's, we encountered catalogs, posters, advertising uh, uh, the exhibitions that were works of art themselves because they, they were printed, they were beautiful, works of art. And uh, Lito Sandoval, another member of the community who is a writer, a performer, also uh, lent material uh, for the exhibition. Uh, Valentina Aguirre, uh, who is uh, part of the board of the GLPT Historical Society and one of our god uh, one of our godmothers, uh, actually that material as well, as well as Jesse James Johnson, who is uh, uh, another one of the lenders, lent, uh, got us got some very interesting photos of performances and uh, photos of pride uh, of the trans and Latino contingencies, very proudly displaying their flags. And um, there are distinct Latin American cultures
4: mm-hmm. and
5: Latin and Latinidad you know, in, in its full spectrum, you
4: know? Right. Yeah. Um, I had something I wanted to ask you. I mean, just uh, last year, Esta Noche, which is a, uh, you know, was a Latino um, LGBTQ bar, had closed down due to just what a lot of small businesses and communities are facing, gentrification and high uh, rents and or leases for businesses. Um You know, kind of after doing this work, the the curation of of Latinx um, LGBTQ history and the activists who came before us, where do you see, you know, the ongoing cultural influences of the Latinx community as it applies to the LGBTQ community today?
5: So, in a way, my perspective coming from a radically different art system, because Puerto Rico has a national art system in which the public is the major stakeholder in the public programming of this, uh, of this institution, very different from the United States, where everything is private. Everything is private and owned by private interest. So I challenge traditional curatorial practices and perspectives. And, of course, I pay the price, <laughs> mm-hmm. in, <laughs> especially in graduate school. But Mari Carmen Ramirez, the curator that I mentioned before, evokes uh, Cuban curator Gerardo Mosquera, one of the curators of the Bienal de La Habana, and he calls for us to come together uh, in the development of a horizontal network of exchange among Latin American and Latino artists, curators, critics, so that we can counter the vertical way in which Latinos and Latin American narratives are co-opted by the museum, and, 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 and we need to... Uh, they open the door for communities to represent themselves. So this is in one way something that I've gotten out of the, uh, of, the of the analysis of this epoch of the '90s, mostly that people here were doing just that, creating these networks. Mm-hmm. And and it's, it's it's fascinating to know that the story continues, and that uh, Juliana and I are very much devoted towards continuing and furthering these uh, analysis and these practices. And 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 not just from the Latino perspective, but from all perspectives. I, I mean, I would love to work with the Asian community and every other community that, that wants to uh, uh, kind of uh, work to reorient the way that their communities are framed by the institution. Uh, you know, in Latin American sense, uh, usually narratives that pre- project us or that uh, present us as fantastic others right? you know, Frida Kahlo, et cetera. But there's all kinds of nuanced uh, uh, cultural practices and positions, and I think that what we what we want to do with this exhibition is open the door for further uh, for further research to be done, and obviously for this not to just be uh, 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 an exhibition that is uh, temporary but to to have a more uh, solid representation in this new museum development that is underway at the GLBT History Museum, which is uh, trying to expand and grow. And, of course, we, we would like to to do everything we can to help, uh, uh, you know, build that institution.
4: Sure, sure. You mentioned something earlier I do yeah. want to discuss and touch on before I let you go, and that is the uh, transgender, you know, Latino community, um, or I should use Latinx, which is much more inclusive, uh, I feel as if uh, the community really needs to come together and rally on issues that impact LGBTQ uh, Latinx pe- uh, people, um, especially the transgender community and issues of like immigration and or HIV AIDS. Those continue to be issues that impact our community. Are you seeing that, uh, you know, there are more people willing to come together to address these issues?
5: Well, like you mentioned before, there are economic forces that are reshaping the community. So what we are uh, hoping is that the people who remain, the new people who are coming in, will continue the work of these uh, people so that that work does not lose inertia. Because a lot of the people that we talked to have told us about uh, their friends having to leave the city, a lot of them being... uh, uh, atomized across the West Coast or uh, some of them even returned uh, to, to their home countries. Uh, uh, Adela Vasquez, whom I mentioned, moved to Florida, to Miami and currently uh, based there. So we've seen an atomization of that scene, and so we're seeing that this, then the, the, the history is fleeing the city. The city. So Juliana and I want to capture a little bit and, and kind of uh, uh, tell, uh, uh, show the work to everyone to see who is, is still here and who wants to continue to join us in this um, investigation and this uh, conversation, uh, and we've discovered many, many of the of the people who are who are doing this uh, work for a very long time have reached out to us to 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 help us and to continue to learn more about it and to join them in their efforts of uh, conservation uh, of that history. So, you know, this is this is where we're right now at a point where. We hope to be able to continue what we began here. This is not the point of end or the conclusion of anything. It's actually the, the point of the uh, beginning, a point of departure towards uh, great point. more uh, uh, more investigation and more exhibitions.
4: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, great point. Before I let you go, uh, you know the um, Latin countries today. We're starting to see some movement when it comes to. Um, you know, equal rights. Uh, We've seen some Latin uh, countries address even marriage equality for same-sex couples. Um, You know, kind of, what are your feelings on on those? Uh, You know, you're looking at uh, activists in the 70s and 80s. I don't think that that was a focus for them in terms of marriage equality. We had mentioned HIV-AIDS, and here we are today. Do you think that it is? Can we make, can we make a blanket statement that it's a little safer for Latinx people, even within their own communities? It's not a
5: flow, really. I mean, look at our country here. I mean, we think it's safe for us to be gay, but we see us slipping into an abyss, you know? of uh, we can we can go back and forth in terms of how progressive and how and how uh repressive we are towards the civil freedoms that enable lgbt people to live openly and freely so i see that there is a, certainly a movement towards the consciousness and awareness of equality but i just hope that we all make the right decision just like we're going to make the right decision tomorrow here and continue to elect leaders that continue that progressive agenda because Really, uh, I see across the board a bunch of very scary characters mm-hmm. in Latin American politics, and they're all pretty much uh, much of what we what we already know. People who come from a very specific social class, who are a very specific sexual orientation, and who are of a very uh, specific uh, gender. <laughs> yeah. And, and 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 kind of a uh, so we we want to be able to keep the diversity. Uh, real and uh, and working and alive. So this is why I tell my friends, even though we may have achieved uh, marriage and we may have achieved much, we still have to continue the fight, and we cannot lose the tone of militant because uh, that's exactly where they want us. They want us to feel comfortable. They want us to to, to ease it up on them, uh, on on you know the institutions. I mean, um, so we need to continue to keep up the the. The conversation about diversity, racial, economic, uh, and uh, in terms of sexual orientation. That's a battle that still continues.
4: Thank you so much, Angel. Thanks for sharing with us, as, as well as thanks for working with the team to curate this very important Uh, exhibit. It's going on now through February 2017 at the GLBT Historical Museum. That's located at 4127 18th Street right here in San Francisco. And it's called Noche de Ambiente. Angel, thanks again.
5: Thank you very much, Michelle.
4: Don't go away. When we come back, the show continues. And yes, you guessed it, Stephanie Miller will drop by and share her thoughts on the eve before Election Day.
3: And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
4: Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Monday, the eve before Election Day. And we're so lucky. Our special guest, our next special guest, is here with us. I mean, super lucky. She's an American political commentator, comedian, host of her own show, The Stephanie Miller Show, a liberal, a liberal talk radio program. Um, if you remember from the Air America days, I mean, she is the original. She is it when it comes to liberal talk. It is Stephanie Miller. Stephanie, welcome to the program.
1: That makes me sound incredibly old, Michelle. But thank you very much. <laughs> I yeah. I'm, I'm, right I'm meant to. Right after Marconi in- invented radio, that's when I started.
4: <laughs> Actually, I, I meant to go. I mean, you are the legit uh, OG, you know, liberal talk radio host. Like, it, you can't listen to anybody else but Stephanie if you're into liberal talk. That's what I meant. That's
1: right. You must must just glue your radio to that dial position and leave it there.
4: Exactly, exactly. So before we talk about this awesome tour that you have going on, actually it is um, launching in select theaters all across the country. Uh, Before we get into that, I want to ask you, it's the eve before election day. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What's going on over there in Stephanie Miller World?
1: I am... uh, Confident, and yet with a great deal of nervous gastrointestinal distress, if I can't, if you don't mind my oversharing with you.
4: <laughs> no, not at all. Uh,
1: yeah, it's, you know, I, I mean, I, I, that's the thing is I think it depends on, you know, you read one headline or poll and you feel fine, and then you read another one and go, oh, my God, you know. And so I think that's what this is. I mean, the fact that Donald Trump could be anywhere even vaguely close to the White House is just terrifying in itself, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, it's funny. Everybody's talking about Nate Silver's, you know, actually much lower. Like he only has it at a sixty five percent chance of her winning, which is still, you know, favored, but all the other models have it up at like ninety eight, ninety nine percent. Yeah. So I I am cautiously optimistic, but I think it's all about turnout and it's all you know, I, I just I want people to be scared. Yeah. And get out exactly. Mode. And that's part of what, you know, the Sexy Liberal movie is tonight. It's not just a hilarious comedy show. I think it it's really gonna be like a final get out the vote rally because Everybody said Saturday. It wasn't even like a comedy show. It's like a primal scream that I think we all needed from this just horrible election cycle and all the negativity and racism and sexism and homophobia we've been exposed to from this Trump campaign.
4: Exactly. So talk to us. You brought up the Sexly Liberal Comedy Tour, and I mentioned it opens... In select theaters, what does that even mean? Because for some of us who are diehard Stephanie Miller fans, we've been able to enjoy uh, the, just that—an actual, you know, event, a show with you in person. This is something a little different that you're doing. Well.
1: Yeah, except that, you know, and different and yet the same in some ways, Michelle, that's what's so cool about it is, as you know, you know, I do this morning drive radio show, so I, we just couldn't get to all the cities that wanted the show, there were, you know, people starting Facebook pages all over the country, bring sexy liberal here, bring sexy and we just couldn't. I mean, we did, you know, like one show a month on my schedule, but we obviously could only get to a select amount of cities, so when Fathom events came to us, we were like, oh my God, this is a way to be in 400 cities, we're in 400 theaters at once. Um, and so that was, and and with the show we filmed Saturday, Michelle was, I mean, just off the chain, as the kids would say, (laughs) we had, uh, we had, you know, Stephen Stills was on panel and played guitar, Jill Silbule and her band, we sang America Back, her hit as the finale. And the show was just, uh, made the crowd was amazing. It was, uh, yeah, you know, it was just a, it was really the finale of this whole ridiculous election year. And. But anyway, what I think is going to be cool is you are going to have the same feeling because you're going to be in a theater with other another audience full of sexy liberals. So it's going to be just like you're there. Right. It's the same feeling of, of being, you know, I think that's been part of the big thing of the tour is being in a room with like-minded people and going, okay, I'm not crazy.
4: Right. You know? Yeah. Well, you can head to stephaniemiller.com and uh, click on the sexy comedy liberal tour, and it'll take you to Fathom Events. Yeah. Well, just
1: go to yeah, or just go to fathomevents.com. Okay. All right. You yeah. You can you can find. The theater near you, the theater uh, near you.
4: That's right. So I have to ask you, though, I know I got a little bit of time. Um, I, I was just wondering about this, you know, given, you know, what you do and uh, and your just the information that we have about how you grew up and all that stuff. You've always been in a political household. Um, what was it like this election year with you, your family, your friends?
1: Well, I, I you know, my dad's been gone 30 years, but I've said that forever, that I, this is not my dad or Goldwater's party, but I mean... I mean, look at now. I mean, I I think this is such an embarrassment to a lot of decent Republicans that Donald Trump is their nominee. You know, Mm -hmm. I was surprised at Halloween that zombie Reagan didn't come back and massacre entire Trump rallies. But that was just me.
4: Yeah, it, it it has been super crazy, uh, but I'm glad that it's, it's coming to an end. I feel like uh, I'm not even going—I've stopped breathing this morning. I just can't believe we're we're here. Um,
1: no, I think we're all feeling like that. I mean, there have been studies. You know, psychologists have said this is just causing significant stress, this election, for all of us. And it feels like it's been going on forever, and it's so ridiculous. I mean, I don't even know how you run a campaign against— someone that rarely, if ever, says anything that's true
4: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Donald Trump. And secondly, has, you know, ridiculous policies. And it's just, right. it's like, it's not even, you're not even debating, like, a sane person. You know, oh. did you hear he said that Hillary's going to let 650 million immigrants in in the f- her first week in office? <laughs> Michelle, there are 320 <laughs> million people in the United States. I mean, I... I how do you, you know, he's not building a wall. Mexico's not paying for it. He's I not doing anything that he's saying he's doing. It's, I mean, it's insane that he's even got the amount of people supporting him that he does.
4: Right, right. That's the scary part. And so I wanted to ask you, I mean, doing this, uh, you do it so well. You talk about politics here in this country and get people involved, but you do it in a way where we can also have some fun with it. Um, kind of, you know, we're... What are your thoughts and where we're at politically? I think more women are coming out, more young people are involved. Are you seeing that for yourself?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, certainly, Michelle, we're hearing that the early numbers sound great, that Hispanics, of course, as we suspected, are coming out in record numbers. Women are coming out. I mean, already, I think we're getting signs in the early vote. Um, I I have every confidence that this is, that we are going to have a great night tomorrow. I think there's going to be more of a hidden Hillary vote than there is this ridiculous hidden Trump vote. I mean, I got to say, look at those Trump voters, those rallies. Those people are proud. Right. Those people, they're proud to, you know, have hang a Hillary effigy from a, a noose and, and, you know, have a T-shirt that says, you know, Hillary's the C-word, vote for Trump, you know, standing next to his wife and daughters. I mean, those people are proud. They're proud, you know, the, the Klan endorsed Donald Trump, you know, I mean. <laughs>
4: well, what do you think, um, you know, by, by Donald Trump even running and getting this far, and then what we hope Hillary Clinton will be our next president, how do you think that that's going to impact you as a liberal talk, show, host. I, I think, you know, we... Well, we if it,
1: Trump wins, I'll be in a liberal internment camp somewhere. <laughs> uh, Hillary wins. You know, then we're just going to be on defense like we have been
4: mm-hmm. during the
1: Obama years. You know, mm-hmm. we, we're going to, believe me, we've already seen Hillary derangement syndrome, you know, times 10. I can't even imagine. Right.
4: Um, I think, you know, I gotta I think she's
1: going to be a great president nonetheless. I really do.
4: Uh, are you proud? I mean, just, we've gotten this far.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean when you think about it Michelle it's really pretty amazing for all the negativity and horror you know you're like we're i i you know knock on wood we're going to have our first woman president and it's about time
4: Exactly. It is. Before I let you go, I got a couple minutes left um tell us a little bit more about that one night event uh which is today, well, it launches yeah, today. Yeah, I
1: hope people understand it's only tonight. It's just tonight. It's a one night it's a one night event only. It's I think it's at 7:30 everywhere. Mm-hmm. But just go to fathomevents.com and you can find the theater near you. But I think, you know, that's what's going to be so great is it's it really trust me, it is the primal comedy scream that you need after this election cycle and before you go out and vote tomorrow, I mean or before you know whatever election day tomorrow it is um we we had such an amazing show michelle i mean it seriously was uh an incredible experience, and so you you i just it's a way for us to be all over the country, but just tonight just tonight is adam um and uh go we we you deserve it go laugh go laugh that's that's <laughs> right,
4: I can breathe and laugh with you and then and then we'll find out uh, results tomorrow one last thing before I let you go, I never got the chance to to say this to you but um Thank you so much for, for coming out and uh, for being an inspiration to me and for leading women who are doing talk shows across you know the country and just being who they are. So Aww, thank now you. Now
1: don't, don't make a lady all teary. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I don't know if that's possible for Stephanie Miller, but, but seriously, you On are my hero. Um, Oh, Thank
1: you, sweetie. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you for the show. Yeah. Thanks for the time.
4: All right. Well, everyone tune in to the Stephanie Miller Show, as you already probably do here on the Progressive Voices Network. And tonight only is your chance to go check out Stephanie Miller in a theater near you. Head to Fathomevents.com. Don't go away. The show continues right after this.
3: You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at progressivevoices.com.
4: This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say, I do especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW.
3: When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now back to the Michelle Meow Show.
4: Welcome back! Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Michelle Meow, your host, and uh, we're celebrating so many things within the LGBTQ community. I know that just the other day we celebrated National Coming Out Day, but at the same time, there there's some something out there that's kind of, I guess, bringing us down. And I say us, I mean that like everyone even myself included and sometimes when we're feeling down or we're feeling like something's off It's kind of scary to talk talk about it openly and publicly. Well, here on the show, you know there are no secrets. We talk about everything. That's why it's called Your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And since the holidays coming up, I always tend to think about those in our own community, the LGBTQI community, who could sure use someone to talk to or perhaps even, you know, someone to be around. Depression is not... A horrible thing. And I think that if we could just break it down, come together and talk about these issues that impact our community, we would move forward. We would empower each other. And I think that we would have a whole lot of resources out there that we might not know about. I'm going to read some some facts to you. And uh, it is in partnership with our sponsor, Kaiser Permanente. And hopefully this will help you find your voice. (laughs) That's that's right. So here's what I have. Approximately one in five adults in the United States, 43.8 million, experience mental illness in a given year. One in five youth experiences uh, a severe mental disorder at some point in their life. And more than 15 million American adults adults ages 18 and older in the United States experience a major depressive disorder in a given year. So as you can imagine, talking about this issue is very difficult for most people. I'd like to welcome Dr. Mason Turner. He is the chief of psychiatry at Kaiser Permanente of San Francisco to the program to talk about Find Your Voice as well as depression and how it impacts the LGBTQI community. Dr. Turner, thank you so much for joining us
2: today. Thanks for having me.
4: So let's start by talking about Find Your Voice. I think um, it's an incredible campaign, and I read about it this morning, and uh, I I would, you know, not very many, even doctors and or networks or organizations out there have a positive way of talking about mental illness.
2: Right, so I think, firstly, it's really important to emphasize that stigma is one of the biggest reasons why people don't seek treatment for mental illness and other forms of mental health disorders. That's really important because if you have a stigma about how you're feeling or you have a stigma about how uh, you're presenting yourself to other people, you're going to be less likely to get the necessary help that you need or maybe even admit to yourself that you have a problem that needs to be addressed. And so part of what we're trying to do at Kaiser Permanente is really break down some of those barriers, some of those walls around stigma, and really understand how we can reach out to people and tell them it's okay to talk about how you feel. Find your words, find your voice, and be able to talk about what's going on inside for you.
4: Yes, absolutely. And like I mentioned earlier in my introduction, depression does impact the LGBTQI community. We're not immune to depression and we're certainly not immune to mental illnesses. So for the purpose of this show, I want to focus our talk, our discussion this afternoon on the LGBTQI community. Let's start with depression. It's the holidays. Um, You know, a lot of material will come out during the holidays affecting the LGBTQI senior community. What are your thoughts about aging within the LGBTQI community and how that relates to uh, depression? And if there are any statistics that you might be able to offer?
2: So first of all, aging affects everyone, regardless of whether you're LGBTQ or not. I think aging is is one of those issues that we all face. All of us, hopefully, are aging every single day in some ways, right? And so as we change and we go through our phases of life, we have to think about how we adapt and how we transition, whether it's going from our 20s to our 30s to our 40s, our 60s, 70s, and 80s. We have to figure out how we transition from one phase to another. And I think for a lot of LGBTQ individuals who have really spent a lot of their lives uh, fighting discrimination, fighting stigma, uh, lasting through uh, the 80s and 90s and the AIDS crisis when they were losing so many of their friends, those traumatic memories. As they get older, they find themselves looking back over their lives and wondering, you know, what contributions did I make? How did I get through these particularly traumatic uh, periods of my lifetime? And what am I going to be doing in the next 10 or 20 years uh, in light of those issues that I faced in my life?
4: Mhm. And then from, you know, a medical point of view or for for you at least as a uh, medical professional, you know, for those who did fight for the majority of their lives um fight discrimination, fight oppression, you know, it's only been a few years ago that society or the polls um are talking openly about tolerance and acceptance in general of LGBTQI people here in the United States. In your opinion, I mean, just because we are suddenly more accepted or more tolerated in in media and in pop culture, um, you know, does that does that all of a sudden decrease the percentage of depression or the stigma of it within the LGBTQI community? Um, especially those who, like you said, lost someone during the HIV AIDS um, epidemic that impacted our community and or during that time when you know, people openly harassed or discriminated LGBTQI people.
2: You know, it's a great question because I think sometimes we look at it where we are now in terms of our tolerance, in terms of having uh, rights to marriage and those kinds of things. And we may uh, be tempted to think, well, a lot of the fight is over and we've arrived at certain, a place in our lives where we actually have equality among our LGBTQ individuals with others in society. And I think it's great where we've landed. I think it's great that we actually have a tolerance and we see that in our society. At the same time, for those who have gone through periods where they were discriminated against, where maybe they feared for their lives, there were other issues they had to face as, as younger individuals, those memories are very, very tough to forget. And as you age and as you think about how you look back over your life and celebrate your accomplishments and really think about, you know the, again, those next 10 or 20 years— you really have to go through a process of understanding where you've come from and how you've dealt with those traumas in your past.
4: You know, this is not anecdotal. It's more personal, but I found that being out in, say, for example, the Castro, the gay neighborhood um, here in San Francisco, well, one can argue if it's still gay, but um, I think it's iconic. It means a lot to us uh, who still here, live here in the San Francisco Bay Area. But, uh, you know, once I guess we achieved marriage equality, and and uh, we we have you know the president of the United States evolve on his position regarding gay rights. Um, the the positivity or or how fast that that moved here in in our country has an impact on us socially. And then also contributes to the depression level. So what I'm talking about is, you know, some of my friends feel even more depressed because now they're, they're living in a, in a time in which it feels domesticated or it doesn't feel as gay. Does that, does that make any sense?
2: It does. And I think for a a lot of LGBTQ individuals that are aging, they look back on the days of the 60s, 70s, 80s, where they were really fighting a fight to actually bring themselves into a place where they could talk about uh, their sexuality or their sexual orientation, their lifestyle, that kind of thing. And as you arrive at a place where we're really more integrated into the fabric of society— it becomes a little, I think, a jarring for some people. Even disorienting, you might say, to kind of, what do I fight for next? You know, where have we arrived? The life that I knew before 20 or 30 years ago is very different than it is now. And as an individual, you have to really think about when those situations occur in your life, how do you transition from who you were 20 or 30 years ago to who you're going to be in the next 20 or 30 years? And those transitions are oftentimes fraught with a lot of depression and a lot of different issues that have to be addressed.
4: I heard you say this earlier. I mean, part of the solution is fighting the stigma so that we can be a little bit bit more out and open and reach out for help when we need it or, you know, find our voice. Right. Um, What else? What 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 other solutions I've heard? I've hear of medical professionals who talk about the importance of still you know, creating spaces for LGBTQ uh, seniors and the aging community to have that sense of community that people that understand them, whereas younger, modern, progressive, if you will, even radical medical professionals will argue that it's the institutions, if you can create a diverse place that is inclusive of LGBTQ medical professionals, then that, that solves the problem. Um, I think it's a, it's a personal perspective, but at the same time, you can you know, educate on this and what, what your thoughts are. Is it a little bit of both or is it one or the other?
2: I think it's a little bit of both. Um, but what's important to keep in mind when we talk about uh, community and we talk about where people find their level of social interaction and comfort and what have you, what's important for anyone, regardless of age, but particularly as you uh, become older and you may become more isolated, is you have to find the community. So for many individuals who are starting out in their careers or their jobs, uh, they're maybe working in environments where they have friends and they're around people all day long. When they all of a sudden retire, let's say, and they have a lot of time to spend alone with themselves, we see a lot of depression surfacing during those periods of time. And the communities really have to support those individuals and you have to find those places where you feel comfortable and where you can gain that social interaction. For many of us, that's work or maybe it's family or it's some kind of, you know, group of parents as we're raising our kids. What becomes important for the LGBTQ community as we age, we have to think about how we maintain that particular community as we leave work and as we move on into different phases of our lives.
4: I, um, I also want to break this down because, you know, I think that talking about the LGBT community, and we've done this before uh, many, many times, we talk about the community as if we're all the same. And, <laughs> you know, we're completely different, even from a, we could be different from a sexual orientation perspective or gender identity perspective and, of course, sex. Right. So let's break it down um, in kind of talking about aging, depression, and we'll start with the you know, the gay community, I mean, there's a difference between the gay community and the lesbian community. Would you say that there are some similarities and or differences? Or it's a it's also, again, a little bit of both. And if there are specific uh, examples of how depression can impact um, any of those communities specifically, let us know.
2: Yes, yeah, so I think there are differences between the gay community and the lesbian community in terms of aging issues. I think as a whole, um, many men tend to more isolate more as they get older, and sometimes women actually tend to turn in more towards their community to find that support. And men need to learn how to be in communities as they get older, talk about their vulnerabilities, talk about the stigma that they have experienced in ways that are very important. I always like to say that the gay community, uh, gay men, are still men. And men, as a general rule, in my experience, do need to understand and think about how they talk about their feelings in ways that are different than women. The lesbian community, those are women. And women have a certain way of talking about their feelings and engaging in community that's different. Those differences are not necessarily going to uh, go away as you get older just because you're a gay or lesbian individual. Same with trans and with other individuals. Those communities have their own ways of communicating and being together. And so if you're part of those communities and you really want to gain a sense of connectedness, you have to think about how you do that. And you have to understand how others in your community do that as well, because you're providing that connectedness for them while you're seeking it out for yourself as well.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh, I, this is a big one. And I think that, you know, I'll have to invite you back on to talk about uh, talk about it specifically. But um, aging as well as relationship and dating and I think that there is a social stigma that it, that exists in our community, the gay community, that makes it, you know, it, it hard. It, it's now this discussion, this talk about when are you getting married or do you have a lifelong partner? And if you have a lifelong partner and you're not married, you know, why aren't you married? There's that conversation that's existing that I think contributes to Depression as well. Um, and, uh, you know, not not to ask you for any examples because you are a medical you know, professional and, and not wanting to get into you know, people's lives. But do you do you hear that? Do you feel that there's this all new pressure that exists um, in the gay male community to, to get married?
2: Well, I think one of the the issues that marriage equality raises is that marriage is now uh, available to gay men and lesbians and other individuals when it wasn't before. And we all make choices about how we orient our relationships and who we're with and what level of commitment we have to them. And you're very right, that when people start asking questions about, well, you've been with your partner for 20, 25 years, why don't the two of you just get married? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe the reason wasn't because it wasn't allowable until recently. Maybe the reason is actually because you didn't want to get married or you don't believe in that institution. And that opens up a whole range of conversations that are difficult. And all of these conversations, whenever we talk about our differences, our ways of thinking, we may actually put out something that we feel like we're going to be rejected because of those ideas. That, of course, is going to compound our sense of isolation in some cases, our fear of being ourselves, potentially impact stigma in some ways, and lead to more depression. Mm -hmm. So it's very important that we're open, understand ourselves, and feel like we can talk with others about our feelings in a a really open and supportive framework.
4: And what are your thoughts on, uh, you know, again, the growing old and being alone? Uh, You know, before I feel like before marriage, and again, this is not anecdotal; it's all personal. um, In in talking with you know some friends, especially those who were older gay men and used to dating someone who was a lot younger and or you know younger in general, um, as long as there was the community and the the there was some you know socializing going on, it wasn't really that much of a fear. And and all of a sudden, it almost feels as if there now is a fear, especially if the community. The gay community, the gay neighborhoods, the gay ghettos are, you know, diminishing as we head into, you know, tolerance and acceptance, that there's this real fear that we might end up alone as we
2: age. There's been a lot written, a lot discussed, I think, in my circles among psychiatrists and therapists. We talk a lot about how society feels less connected now than it did uh, previous to all of our electronic communications and email and those kinds of things. Society is less connected in some ways. Uh, you only need to look in a restaurant to see people on their phones and not engaging in conversation, those types of things. And I think uh, for those who are aging, whether you're LGBTQI or not, or not, you're going to be facing some of those issues of a lack of connectedness. And if you're in your 70s or 80s, maybe you're not as comfortable using some of the social media or other ways that we connect these days. You may feel even less connected with others because you don't have those available to you. And I think we have to be very careful to understand that social connectedness as human beings is important to maintain. We need to have interactions with other people on a social basis. We need to see them, talk to them, and engage ourselves on that level in order to feel less isolated. So that's kind of one of the biggest issues I see as we all age, that we're becoming less and less connected, and we have to fight against that in some ways.
4: Well, let's talk about that and going back to, um, you know, some solutions in the campaign that you'd mentioned when we first started uh, our conversation. Um, first of all, yes, fight, fight the stigma. Um, and I think also, you know, something I want to talk to you about is, you know, we tend to sometimes shame each other um, when we're, you know, feeling bad or not feeling good about ourselves. And then we also do a lot of self-shaming as well. Um, Does that, you know, does that ring a bell for you at all uh, in having done some work within the LGBTQ community?
2: Yes. So I think when you're depressed, you tend to view uh, your life through a certain series of lenses that you may not have when you're not depressed. What do I mean by that? Uh, When I'm depressed, I may look at life in more of a negativistic framework. I may see negative aspects of my life and they come to the fore more than the positive aspects. And so some of our initial work with depressed patients is really around how do you emphasize the positive more and diminish the negative and really look at yourself not, as, not in a, a, a shameful context, but in a context as a proud human being who's accomplished a lot in life. If you came up as a gay man or a lesbian or a trans person during certain periods of time, you were very used to being ashamed of who you were. Even if you fought against that, you still had to fight that stigma and the shame that went along with it. And as you age, you may look back on those periods of time and be even more ashamed for what occurred. And you have to fight back very actively against that and really recognize it and really work on limiting the impact that that has on your life.
4: Now, I find that, you know, also if the senior community, the LGBTQ senior community, Um, is experiencing, uh, you know, a rut or some, you know, depression in their life. And they want to reach out, as you had talked about, you know, connecting and how that's important. Um, And this, this, you know, might be an answer for those of you who are much younger. Uh, You know, what what is it that society, we as a community can do, the LGBTQ community can do if someone is experiencing some depression? Um, You know, is it okay to, to go out to... The, the bars and, and socialize and hang out with someone that you know might be depressed or should you reach out to an LGBT senior? And if you do, you know, what are some things that you can do to, to
2: help? The first conversation I typically have with someone who's depressed is to find their words around what that depression is like for them. What words can they put around it? What does it feel like? How can they talk about their depression in a way that helps them to reduce the stigma around that depression? When you do that, when you're able to actually look at it objectively, and you're able to figure out what it is that you need from others around managing your depression, then I encourage people go out and get it. Figure out a way to be involved in the community, to be connected to others, and to really understand that one of the ways to get beyond your depression is by talking to other people about it. If you sit on your feelings, if you can't talk about them, they're going to compound and be 10 times worse, 100 times worse. For those who are on the other side of it, maybe they don't struggle with depression. When a friend of yours or a mentor, an older gay man comes to a younger gay man or an older lesbian comes to a younger lesbian and says, I'm feeling depressed, recognize that that is very difficult for that person to say to you. Listen to them, understand what they're trying to say, ask questions and really try to be there for that person and and try as best as you can not to limit their interaction with you or shame them in some way. And that's very important.
4: Mm, Awesome. Thank you so much. this has been really enlightening and, and also, you know, it feels very good because I get the sense that there has been a lot of talk um, about how we're feeling, but we're not necessarily putting the word depression out there. And I think it has a lot to do with the stigma that you talked about. So if people want to, to find out more information about the, you know, find your voice or find your words campaign, how can they do
2: that? So we have a website, findyourwords.org, and it's a beautiful website, very well done. Really, I think, encapsulates all that we're talking about today. And I would encourage everyone, regardless of whether you have depression or not, or you're struggling with that, go to the website and take a look at it. And it will really help you to feel lighter and understand more about how we can reduce stigma. I would also encourage anyone who's suffering from a mental illness, is depressed, or has other issues that they're really trying to manage in their lives, to think less about a mental illness or a mental disorder, and think about your mental health and wellness. What is it that you need to do as an individual to improve your mental health and feel better from a wellness perspective, uh, psychologically, emotionally, uh, and behaviorally?
4: Dr. Mason Turner, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. It'll be the first of a series of discussions that we can talk openly and also provide a safe space to to hopefully engage others in our community to, to break down that stigma, as you talked about. So thank you so much for joining us here today.
2: Thank you again for having me.